So what we do is we make it easy to start and successfully run a home-based childcare and preschool. And then we make it really rewarding for families to find and engage with those programs. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in this week. This week we learned all about a market that very likely befuddles many of you, it certainly does me, and that's childcare. We speak with Erica Mackey, the founder and CEO of My Village, along with Elkie Govertson, the creator of Mamalode, who just teamed up with My Village as their chief community officer. You know, disruption is an overused, overhyped buzzword at this point, but the childcare market is one that seems very frustrating to everyone involved. Erica and her team at My Village are rethinking that and trying to change it, and their model is quite compelling. In this conversation, we investigate that model, talk about how in just one year, My Village has helped launch over 27 women-owned small businesses, and finally, as a seasoned vet in entrepreneurship, Erica offers some great wisdom for anyone aspiring to launch a new venture. So without further ado, I bring you Erica Mackey and Elkie Govertson. Okay, so we're here today with Erica Mackey, Elkie Govertson, part of the My Village team. Erica, you're the co-founder and CEO. Elkie just joined the team as Chief Community Officer. That is such an awesome title, not only in general, but for you specifically. I want to dig into that. But uh, Erica, welcome to Missoula. You're kind of making a tour through uh, through this side of the state. Thank Bozeman's you. Bozeman's headquarters for you, right? It is, yep. We have an office in Bozeman and a lab school actually in our office. A lab so, school. I don't even know what that is. It, we have one of our My Village locations inside of our office. So our children go there, so they're in our office, and we're, learned, we're part of the, the experiment to learn experimental parents. And we also have other members of our community that have their kids in, in care in our office. Yeah, so My Village is setting out to sort of fix childcare, mm-hmm. early childhood education, et cetera. So give us the pitch. I mean, you guys, you're probably well-practiced because you just landed one of the the largest seed round in Montana history. What is it, just under $6 million? That's right, yeah. So, yeah, tell us about what is my village? What, what are you trying to sort of do and disrupt and change? Sure, yeah. So there's about 15 million children in the United States under the age of five that are in paid care. And over half of their parents are not happy with their current situation. So quality is super variable all over the place. And it actually costs more to send your child to childcare as a four-year-old than it does to public university tuition in more than 50% uh, of the states across the U.S. So it... The equation doesn't make sense. What what we found is it's basically quality, affordability, and availability unless you get on a wait list before you started thinking about conceiving. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, we lived in Seattle when we had our kids and like people sort of like we were ostracized because we hadn't thought about childcare before we thought about having a child. It was just so odd culturally. When I landed in Montana and started calling providers trying to figure out, yeah, I had a one-year-old at the at the time, calling people trying to figure out, can I get on waitlist? I heard about amazing family home provider people who run childcare businesses out of their homes. I heard back more than once, I will never have an opening because my parents plan their pregnancies around my availability. Oh, 
<laughs> Can you and it sounds perverse, but it's sort of just a symptom of a big problem, a problem you're, you and your yep. team are trying to solve. Exactly. You know? I mean, it me- makes you as a parent feel like you're failing before you even have a chance to start, yeah. which is yeah. just heartbreaking. So, you know, we, I took a, I, I'm an entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, of, of history too. So a serial entrepreneur, I've, I've have a, another business called Zola Electric in Africa. So I actually moved to Montana from East Africa. I was wow. there for 12 years. Yeah. And that business was in a totally different sector, but it's basically kind of solar lease, solar city, if you will, for low-income African households. Mm-hmm. Um, so my experience there was building a business from PowerPoint presentation to what ended up being, you know, we're over a thousand person workforce, okay. uh, full-time 2,500 person sales force across five countries, install about 10,000 houses a month, raised over 200 million to... Uh, scale that business. Wow. Ended up as a parent on the road trying to be a working mom, which yeah. is where the pain became very real for me. Um, and then as I started to unearth, really, is this just my problem? Is this other people's problem? Brought me back to the States because it turned out just because I hadn't been hearing about the challenge didn't mean it wasn't real. It's because mm-hmm. I wasn't asking the question and I wasn't a parent yet. Um, and so once I unearthed these these pain points, I then went to the other side of the system trying to say, okay, well, if it's not working for parents, it must be working for somebody who in the system yeah. is winning. Yeah. Who in the system is winning? Yeah. It turns out nobody. <laughs> it sounds like that. I mean, you, you, you sort of present this problem of, you know, shortage of supply. Yeah. And then providers that are underpaid, underappreciated. Yep. Parents that are unsatisfied, that feel like they can't afford it. I mean, this seems like it's one of those mountains beyond mountains problems. Yeah, and some of the reason that that's evolved is because there hasn't been a large enough scale view of how to kind of tackle fixing the system from a services perspective. So when I looked at the educator side and the provider side, you know, talked to hundreds of child care center director and employees and then learn pretty quickly about family home, what's licensed, you know, there's a whole regulatory system that, that tackles that and, and also unofficial kind of friends, families and neighbors that, that are also participating in the child care sure. system, nannies and things. And so we, we talked to everybody and found out pretty quickly how magical family home experience, that, that experience could be but it's not often executed very well and it's not supported by um, kind of a professional support system to help those businesses really become viable businesses. So really well-intentioned people get into childcare because they're super passionate about kids, but often end up having to close their doors because they find out pretty quickly that they have to be front of the house, back of the house, marketer, chef. Right. Do the and whole then, thing. Oh, by the way, provide phenomenal care for eight to 10 hours a day on top of that. And by the time they realize they've actually been subsidizing care for all their neighbors, their kids right. are now in kindergarten and it's not worth it to keep the business going. Sure. So I'd love to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of how you kind of yep. find, you know, kind of create your value proposition. Before we do that, though, Elke, you know, last we spoke, mm-hmm. uh, you were sort of transitioning out of Mamalo, this mm-hmm. wonderful sort of multimedia platform you created here that has um, been such a powerful community builder. Taking some time off for yourself, yet something uh, about my village drew you back in. Yeah, a lot of that is named Erica Mackey. Okay. <laughs> we already she's, can see Erica, you're very she's compelling. A compel- <laughs> yeah, she's a very compelling person, hard to say no to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had had the opportunity to do some consulting with my village 
even concurrently with Mama Load. Um, and it was great. I got to learn a lot. I got to see how their team work. I got to see a form of leadership that I don't normally get exposed to as well as far as goal setting and keeping a team moving quickly and aligned. Okay. So I was really compelled at first by just the sort of way of working. I had originally really thought I was going to step back from the parenting space because after doing Mom Load, I was like, I'm good for a little while on, yeah, the, yeah. on that. Um, but really, when I defined what it was I wanted, I wanted to work with people I adored. Because mm-hmm. for a decade, I've been meeting people and been like, oh, it'd be great to do something together. Right. You know, you get that camaraderie. And then I wanted to take better care of myself than mm-hmm. I had as running my own startup. And I wanted to change the world. And I was not sure if I could pull off all three of those yeah, things Yeah, that's, a, that's at once. a tough Venn diagram right <laughs> It there. is a tough Venn diagram, but I think if you really insist on it, yeah. it's pretty amazing how insistence pushes your circles into overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, like quality, affordability. Yeah, right, affordability. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, basically, it's very We're similar. Make it happen. You guys are optimizing for a lot <laughs> yeah. of variables here. And when I thought about the causes that I personally care about that I do think are things I'd like to see change in the world, be that um, I'm raising sons, so I think a lot about masculinity. Um, I'm raising high schoolers, so I think a lot about uh, school shootings. I mean, there's a lot of issues that I kind of wanted to put myself behind. We're in Montana with the highest suicide rates in the country, and there's causes that I had sort of thrown myself at before. But really, when you go all the way back to that zero to five space, you're actually touching all of those Absolutely. In the long range. Yeah. yeah. So it was like if I wanted to get to work with the best people in the world, change the world in the most like dramatic and effective way, and then the taking care of myself is a little more on me. <laughs> but Eric is really good at helping me with that too. Uh, this was the this was the right space yeah. for me. Absolutely. And so you've plugged in as chief community officer and you just got to tell me what that even means. It I know, sounds it's awesome. It's like the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know everyone's... I mean, like... we did have a few weeks back, we had Emily Grassley on, and she's a graduate of our program, but she is now Chief Curiosity Officer at a museum in Chicago. Oh, cool. That's a pretty cool title. That's a really good Chief Community Officer is pretty cool, too. CCOs of all different... <laughs> See, all the CCOs. Yeah, Those go. are right. the best. Yeah, either yeah. Chief Creative Officer, which is also a fun title. So all you listeners out there, go for the CCO roles. Whatever they may be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for me, it was really, it was a great fit because I was kind of hitting both building our internal community, whether that's our team and the culture there or the educators and their experience or the families in the program. Those were all in my wheelhouse. It also, as a title, allows me to open up my community and my network yeah. to this new job and be able to take a decade of Montana business experience and put it into a, a newer company in Montana as well. Uh, one of the things for uh, from the company side of sure. why it made sense at this stage to really invest at this level in our community uh, function is because one of the things that we learned when we went and talked to all of the different educators from all different backgrounds, what was pretty, while certainly different trends popped out, what was pretty glaring was that people often shut the doors of their business because they felt isolated. And so 
you're spending all day in your four walls with zero to five year olds and you don't have a broader professional community right. to connect to, to have your back, to be in your corner, to connect you with resources, just to say, we've got you. And so a lot of what we're trying to do, so we, yes, all the workflow management, you know, all, all of the business toolkit stuff, but at the end of the day, we are connecting individual, a very fragmented market and individual business owners with a broader support network and a community that they often never experienced before. Thinking about that and just in the, the name of the business, My Village, is so perfect. Um, you know, I, I think as par- any parent can sort of recognize that moment when you're feeling all alone. Like I think of a moment on an airplane with, you know, my kids crying <laughs> yeah. and I'm just like so stressed out trying to do whatever it takes to to soothe this this young creature that I have no idea how to relate with. And then some just kind, whether it's a flight attendant or a fellow passenger, whoever just lends a hand. And we throw this phrase, it takes a village around all the time. Yeah. Yet we rarely generalize it to kind of the system that we put in place to help us as parents. Absolutely. There has to be sort of an inspiration behind some of the philosophy. And then I noticed, you know, your time in Africa probably informed how child care is conceptualized as well, I would would assume. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, where where in a village, there's not a ton of monetary resource, right? Right. But everybody there's, you know, even in in remote villages, it's not like the sense of orphans or communities absorb anybody in need. and, And there's always a safety net. And so for you know, from from that level all the way up to to just extended relatives always surfacing and figuring it out. Nobody's ever left hanging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really an inspiration of and I do think that there's a future where this business model, as we get kind of those pillars, the the quality piece as well as the accessibility piece figured out, that we can can go and the different weighted challenges, we can solve them in different cultures as well. So we can help bring scalable quality to to communities and other places that have the availability. And different kinds of communities too. Not just like location communities. There's lots of sub-cohorts of people who identify by the same curriculum or the same location or the same part of the process. Um, and that's that's a really, I think, special thing about my village is having such a focus on expanding definitions of community sure. and how to really make that just as value-added as product itself. So you're thinking of like knowledge sharing across, you know, geography doesn't necessarily define community. Is that kind of what you're, you're getting at yeah, there? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a ton of expertise in our educators as well. Right, right. Uh, we do have mentors. We also have formal guides. We have lots of different formal layers, but just within, within any niche community, sometimes you just step back and let them share with each other. And so really building around that, um, there's... There's curriculum choices. There's uh, even just maybe their own ages. There's lots of different ways to reshuffle the deck sure. so that people know they're not alone. Yeah. One of the learnings actually from a business model perspective that we took to be able to lean in and support this kind of peer learning infrastructure, com- learning community, was actually from a pretty unexpected <laughs> source in Montana was uh, Great Harvest Bread. Oh, interesting. And so great, we, 
didn't expect when we started this business to end up being a franchise. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if you know that we are a franchise. Um, But we ended up going down that path early last year because as we got started, we realized our we we would not be satisfied with creating businesses that we weren't thrilled to put our own kids in. Mm. And so if we were going to maintain and commit ourselves to a level of quality, they all didn't need to look the same or follow the same philosophy, but a place that we knew had really great heart-led educators and, you know, quality infrastructure in in their program that we a had to provide a certain level of support especially since we are supporting a lot of brand new educators right and b a certain standard hurdle that that they would need to hurdle over to make sure that we could then go and sell to parents mm-hmm. a quality experience that we could stand behind turns out you're actually are a franchise if you co-brand if you take payment and you provide, and that's the gray area, some level of support sure. on on the final experience and in, in user experience. So we embraced that pretty early on and tried. We also knew we can't, it's in a home, so we can't make cookie cutter experiences, nor did we want to sure. for each of these businesses. Um, and, you know, you're ending up franchising people's living rooms, kitchens, and backyards in, in this model, which is also impossible to standardize to, you know, a very minute uh, degree. And so we looked for models that had actually already sort of tried to, to explode the franchise structure uh-huh. and make it work for them. And, and Great Harvest Bread was a really great example. So they have trademarked freedom franchises, what they call it. And it's basically... You have to give away free bread, play loud music, have a great harvest sign, and mill your wheat fresh every morning. Okay. And everything else is sort of on the table. So right recipe- at the control including, of the franchise, including recipes, and there's there's Store lots of layout. shared um, services of like, hey, this marketing worked well, this recipe worked well, but you're, they're not required. So the Gosh. learning community around, and they're quite data driven. So the learning community around their franchisees. These franchisees are great. The top 10% performers in customer service, uh-huh. in recipes, and and then they incentivize them to share their experience and their best practices. And so that's really the, the concept that we felt would really resonate with our educators, where everyone was on a standard, you know, standardized footing for what quality could look like, yeah. but that we could then help them really share what's working for them so others could learn and we could iterate a lot more quickly. For sure. I want to sort of understand the business model Yep. just because it does seem like one of those unsolvable problems where you've got customers that are, think they're overpaying for service, and then you've got providers that are underpaid and undervalued. Yep. As you said before, nobody in the system's winning. Maybe the regulators were winning. I, I don't know. That's maybe a hypothesis. Well, I don't know what even that looks people like. People employed by the government yeah but that's a stretch (laughs) sure so you've got this notion of you're going to disrupt this market that's not working yet how do you do it in such a way that solves these problems that provides an exciting wage for an educator that solves some of the affordability problems for parents and also provides a return for your investors i mean you've got a large this this record-setting seed round i mean the expectations are high for this thing to scale yeah so the the key that unlocks the answer what and to what we discovered was really once we experienced what quality family home so people who run home-based childcare and preschool businesses okay what that can look like and feel like and ultimately drive amazing outcomes for the kids and, and families in care when we saw that that was possible that was what got us really excited because already 
it's lower overhead. You're sharing the overhead with your own family space. There's a lot of tax benefits to running a business in your home and running a home-based okay. childcare. So were there some like prototypes that you came across a, an in-home childcare or a, educator yep. facility where they're like, wow, this family has, or this, this man, woman, whoever has it figured out? Yep. Well, the, there was actually a few of them and they weren't all the same was, was right. what was great. But what they did have in common um, was a few things. One, they had really phenomenal relationships with the families that are in care. Okay. So it was a very like co if you you know, if you can yeah. think of it that way, co parenting mm-hmm. experience. They're spending more time during the week with the educator than they are at home with the awake at least at home yeah, with the families. Yeah, unfortunately or fortunately but yeah, yeah. I don't want to judge what it is. that. Right. <laughs> right. And so so having that really fluid uh, conversation and connection was was one of the things. Two was the continuity of care. So kids who are in care from you know in, infant toddler age range all the way through to five years old as they move on to preschool, having one or two educators that they're working with sure. that entire time. Continuity, mm-hmm. yeah. really important. Uh, also mixed ages. So this can only happen in family home where uh, and and because centers are just larger numbers, you have to start to control by age range. Otherwise, yep. it's safety wise is a challenge. And sure, so, and all there's the sorts of regulations around that too. I yep. would assume. So when you family home can be licensed, and this is you know in home childcare can be licensed for six kids or twelve kids, and you okay. have an employee if you have twelve. So the ratios are still six to one, um, and and so but they are mixed ages zero to five, and. One of the beautiful things about that is also how our brains are wired at that early age to be able to role model and build empathy for younger kids and then have that role model as a younger kid to watch and learn sure. and you know that how our how we developed as as social social humans and so having that ability is also really important pairing that with a well structured day a, an evidence based child led curriculum thought out environment the outcomes were phenomenal and we were starting to see that told by kindergarten teachers saying, hey, kids coming into my program from right. these Better these prepared, schools. better outcomes. Yeah, yeah. and exact, and really well, uh, the social emotional skills mm-hmm. were, you know, the foundation was really solid, their executive functions. So from that, we, s- we said, okay, it's not only possible, but it's ideal if we can figure out how to make the home-based model work. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Then when we stepped back and looked at it from a systems level, why a lot of them were closing their doors was because they couldn't make the business run. Okay. And and because each of them was starting for the very first time, every time alone. And so there was a ton of inefficiency in the system sourcing by themselves. You know, there was no economies of scale yep. from what they were doing. So I s- stepped back and, you know, and looked at it and said, okay, well, we can m- certainly solve the, the business running side of it. Like mm-hmm. that's the stuff that we know how to do really well. And when we consolidate the super fragmented market, there's a lot of financial efficiencies to be sure. gained, which we can then pass on to both the educators and the parents. And so our first kind of thesis about this was what, you know, can we make a percentage on basically the fees that is course corrected by how much we save mm-hmm. them in the, that experience of sh- shared services and consolidation? And turns out we can. So we, our business model, even taking a step back. So what we do is we make it easy 
to start and successfully run a home-based childcare and preschool. And then we make it really rewarding for families to find and engage with those programs. Okay. And we do that through community. We do that through technology. We do that through um, mentorship, you know, a ton, a ton of different ways that we kind of go at sol- delivering on that. Mm-hmm. But that's the fundamental premise. Um, and And what we have found is that ultimately for the 10%, so we take 10%. Uh-huh. We don't charge, even though we're franchise, we charge no franchise fee because um, we're just using that structure to be able to help with quality. It's not really the the business model behind a franchise isn't really that attractive to mm-hmm. us or to our the problem we're trying to solve. Right. Um, so 10%, but we need to earn them back way more than the 10%. And what we've been finding for existing uh, businesses that have already been running that have come into our platform and, and started with all the services is that they're actually earning 30 to 50 percent more with us wow. than without us so even with that with the fee that we charge so is that just freeing up so much capacity in in the home for the for the educator perhaps yeah. or yeah well it's it's also even with weightless when you have all that on your plate to do every day it's, a lot. it's hard to yeah. fill the spots, those gaps that becomes kind of the Tetris of scheduling where you mm-hmm. have one family that does, you know, two days a week at half day and another that does. And so yeah. you, you don't have the meta view of demand to plug all those gaps. So we can, without increasing rates for parents, we can f- help fill out and optimize their occupancy. Oh, so the parents are coming through your system. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Okay. That's huge. Yep. So, and, and eventually when we have, you know, a, hundreds in Montana, thousands of, of locations across the state, parents will be able to come and get intentionally, right now we do it more manually where they're you know connected when we know what they're looking for. But, you know, think about match.com for, yeah. for finding the perfect educator for your child. I mean, it would be, uh, think, think about the pain that we currently <laughs> experience and then having somebody, you get the luxury of being able to match your parenting sure. ethos with the person that you can afford as well. So um, that's our, our dream. And our dream is also to move into a neighborhood and realize there's a My Village down the block and sigh with relief because mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a problem solve for you. Yeah, I'm thinking about this in terms of, you know, one of the themes we've explored in a variety of episodes on this podcast is, you know, different gender equity oriented issues. And this, this is a topic, this, at least from my my reading of Mamalode Elki is kind of in your wheelhouse. <laughs> um, this this sort of discrepancy in the mental load, the mental load that that traditionally the mom has had to bear in a household. Those those things like scheduling all the kids' things, their appointments, figuring out childcare, all these things typically disproportionately fall on the woman in the family. How has your kind of exploration of that issue, you know, in, in, through Mamelode and other parts of your life kind of informed your approach to, to this particular opportunity? Well, one of the greatest things about my village choosing the franchise model is every time they open one, they create a new business owner, yeah. almost always a, a woman. Yeah. Yep. Thus far, calling all men. Sure. <laughs> challenging you. Yeah, we yeah. would love to have a few guy run programs, but right now it is 27 new women business owners at to this date. 27 already. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing this? Mm, since last year. That's awesome. Yeah. So one of the things about this industry being historically fragmented is that that doesn't feel like a professional network. Right. So also by elevating 
this as a profession, this as an aspirational Mm -hmm. profession, and to be part of something larger and to be part of something that may even be a movement. Um, So I think that's a really great piece of the gender conversation around my village. Um, As far as the mom piece, this also gets a lot of moms back in the workforce, Mm -hmm. which I think is super important as well. Yeah, and you think about where the dollars go and the returns on those dollars. I mean, I think about you've probably you're probably familiar with James Heckman's work and the Heckman curve. You know, we make this big hootie do about professors and universities and all this stuff. You know, and all these gatekeeping functions that somebody like me had to go through to get to this job. Yet, the return on paying me to educate your kids much lower than the return on paying somebody to educate zero to five year old children. Yep. It's kind of perverse where we put value in our society. I'm not sort of sort of marketing against myself this is <laughs> in universities. This is an interesting case you're making, Justin. <laughs> but it is. I mean, that's part of this. This. I mean, one establishing businesses for these people kind of elevates the professionalism associated with that that role. The language you're using, calling these people educators, they powerful educators. and Absolutely. entrepreneurs, educators and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. That's empowering. That elevates, and it seems like a a model like this is doing a lot of social good as well. It has to be a huge motivator. It is the motivator. Yeah. You know, obviously I'm motivated to solve my own pain as well, which is what got me interested in the first place. But what actually motivated me to transition from focusing uh, on what I was doing in Africa, which I was very motivated by, some of the poorest people paying the most for the dirtiest energy options was an equation that just didn't sit and and I wanted to course correct. This was as soon as I went out to find that who who's actually getting affordability, availability, quality, when you look at the income restrictions as people, you know, have less and less resource in their household, Mm -hmm. the compromises that families have to make in that in those environments are heartbreaking. And so for us, it wasn't about just about the creating a great business opportunity. Right. We aren't going to do that at the expense of jacking up rates on parents either. And that is why the family home structure, it's already the lowest cost model because you cut out a lot of the overhead requirements of a center-based model. And it allows us to, to create amazing quality for at an affordable rate for, for families across the spectrum. And then we also have prioritized on the the impact side, prioritized making it accessible for families that also qualify for subsidy support. Okay. Um, So so, you provide some of that infrastructural support as well. Yeah, because what ends up happening is even though the – especially in the family home structure, that even though educators can, you know, in essence plug in with the subsidy offering – it's so much overhead and admin to report on it that if you have a wait list, which most of them, if not all of them, you know, you hear people talk, oh, I've got 100 kids on my, you know, I've got a wait list three years long. These are the realities. Why would they sit and write, you know, a ton of reports to right. plug in to have more friction in their in their system? And mm-hmm. so for us, we're really trying to take as much as we can off their plate to make it a no-brainer to be able to plug into uh, support their communities for whatever the needs may be. You just don't want people disincentivized to do the the pieces that matter most, which yeah, is of course the people not. who need it the most. Yeah. So 
if you'll indulge me, I'd love to, you know, so I, I work in this role, you know, as a, as a professor working often with um, entrepreneurs and you know, students with ideas that they're trying to bring to life. I'm just really curious about that. How do you make it happen piece of this? I mean, you've been through it yeah. with the solar at a different scale in a different country, but, but, but here, how, what are the steps you went through when you knew, okay, it's time to get this type of funding and now it's time for venture capital and this is the right fit and, and how do you know you're ready to make your pitch and yep. all those sort of steps. How do you make it happen? Tell you what you don't do is you don't make a business plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but It's a monolithic document that nobody <laughs> ever reads. Exactly. Um, unless you're applying for some like angel pitch that sometimes makes you submit one <laughs> right, right, right. to get in front. But um, th- the first thing that I have always done is find a partner. Okay. Um, so for me, a lot of the joy in doing is by doing it with like-minded, not necessarily like-minded, but mission-oriented mm-hmm. in, in that sense, but like-minded people. And, and having a team and that energy is for me an essential element to okay. make sure that that you're busting down the doors of every next step. So I went out and found my business partner who I actually went to business school with okay. um, almost 10 years ago now. Um, and she was a mom in the similar, you know, similar stage in her life. Facing and the same challenges. Yeah. Had very complementary skills to me, but also big ambitions of wanting to make system level change. And so we then, you know, sat down and started doing market research ourselves. So it started off with before deck, before any of it, you know, started off with hundreds of conversations with parents first like us and then um, didn't want to get in the trap of designing something with the blinders of it's just for me. So parents across all different income brackets and backgrounds and states and countries um, and then went out and had the same, you know, hundreds of conversations with the other side of the, of the market, the supply side of the market to understand really. And they were open-ended questions, open-ended, whatever we could get. It wasn't a set structure, but sure. just trying to start to see trends with the parent side. It was pretty clear right off the bat. The educator side, it was um, learnings that we sometimes had to extrapolate, like the isolation piece. Nobody ever said I'm isolated. I feel isolated, but yeah. they, yeah, you had know, to sort but, of infer that exactly. But they, uh, you could tell that that ultimately it wasn't the financial. They would do this for a lot more, less money, right? Um, and it was it was ultimately burnout that that got them. And so um, once we had all those pieces together, we started brainstorming ideas. It it became pretty clear quickly about the family home side, but brainstorming models of how can we consolidate and and start to actually get it on paper. So financial modeling, what the unit economics would look like for them, because we knew one of the key pieces would be they had to earn more with us. Yeah. So then we could figure out, okay, how much can we actually then earn, making them earn more, um, to then drive what kind of support we could provide for that amount of money at scale. Um, but we didn't get too hung up on that because if we're close, we knew that they're I, you know, we were probably going to be wrong in about half the assumptions, if not all the assumptions. But yeah, it would seem like the just the the you got to make these things pencil out at the individual level. The yeah. scale, the scale piece seems like a slam dunk. Exactly. You know, there's, there's no shortage of demand and, and yep. supply in many ways. And then we went can empower to see who else is playing in this space and has done pieces yeah. about it. Interesting. So, we went and flew around the U.S. trying to, but at this stage, I was actually seven months pregnant wow. <laughs> myself. Yeah. So 
we and we uh, so we got down then we decided to invest time in building out a deck was basically so we knew we needed to raise a little bit in a convertible note basically mm-hmm. to get started to take our what we have found we're pretty convinced about there's a solution here to consolidate this market it's right. in family home we know there's parent demand we pretty sure we can create supply we need to go and test creating supply yep. perfect um, concept yep and so we we create put it down in a, in a powerpoint presentation uh i think we were 12 slides or something like that, you know, very clear about this is the problem. This is the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went out and started talking to uh, people who, so we came from a fortunate position of, I've had investors in the past, so right, right. I at least had conversations to start. But for any budding entrepreneurs out there, we're always open to uh, to conversations to help help others get started, especially in Montana where uh, resources around investors are not always as is easy to connect with. Um, so we started having those conversations and we were lucky enough to get a few who believed in us as entrepreneurs and didn't really, they were con- convinced about the size of the problem and pretty convicted on our approach will result in something, uh-huh. but definitely uh, convinced on us. So that's, they believed in you. Yeah. that's the one thing I would say is make sure, especially as you're selecting your team, that the cohesive story of your team together is incredibly thoughtful and clear and strategic. Sure. Um, of all of the you know businesses that I've advised and supported over the years, I would say that's the number one make or break of whether or not you're going to bring in early capital or not. Um, and then make yeah make your story really concise. So we ended up closing. Uh, it was just over a million in a convertible note to get us through that first year of of testing out the model and getting our product market fit mm-hmm. going we actually closed that round and i went into labor the next day oh my gosh <laughs> wow a week late so i think my oh. body was like <laughs> i'm convinced you were actually in labor as you were closing you just refused yeah, to admit it <laughs> gosh. I, I, I couldn't travel for the end of it so the other thing is i would say like you actually control the more you can control from a fundraising perspective the process the better. So yeah. you set your process, you set deadlines for people. You, you know, obviously if you're not getting the interest, then I think you probably have to internally examine sure. why that is and maybe it isn't the right model or the pitch that you're making. But if you can run the the process and and take control over it, let it you know rather than it controlling you, you'll do it a lot more efficiently with better outcomes. Yeah, and I would think that sends a signal as to you know the the skill and cohesiveness of the team. Yeah. Too. Yeah. These people know what they're doing. They're running a tight operation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, we didn't actually meet any of our investors in person because I was doing yeah. travel. So yeah. I'd have to zoom down to show them oh, that I've got a plan for this. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm solving my own problem and yeah, solving the world's exactly. problems at the same time. Yeah. So I would say don't spend as much time getting the perfect pitch to get started because you're going to learn as you go yeah. what what yeah. and just constantly iterate debrief with your partner or your team or whoever else is in the room every time and also ask investors at the end always yeah. what what do you think my blind spot is sure. i find that to be a very important question and you unearth things that you would never have thought you should you should tell them also what what's the only response to feedback <laughs> You can imagine someone gave me the advice once uh, that when when you're getting feedback, the only response to feedback is thank you for that feedback. <laughs> oh, really? 
So it's just to give yourself a moment to uh, onboard what they're saying rather than Oh, yeah, that's sort of like I get this in the podcast. Like, that's a really good question. (laughs) I think there's a whole radio lab about that, like, turn of phrase. Actually, it's a a Freakonomics one. When you, oh, ask for, some, when you ask somebody a question and they say, that's a good question, it's less about your question and more about just them buying time buying to time. figure out how to answer the question, whether it's good or not, is kind of irrelevant. That's when, 90% of raising teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. What do you think about that, honey? <laughs> right, right. Flip it back. Um, that's a question I had. So what was the hardest question you ever got in a, in a pitch? My hardest question we ever got in a pitch... That's a really good question. <laughs> um, Thank you. Sort I of. think the hardest questions are, and I'm not sure if it's there. It's less about stump being stumped, yeah. But questions where you feel pressure to give an answer rather than saying mm-hmm. we actually don't know that yet, right? And feeling confident enough to be able to say we have a plan to learning that, but we've deprioritized, or that's later, or it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, and so you have to, to know, know when the right moment is to say, I don't know. Exactly. Right. And I would say there's, I, I'm even though I've had a lot of experience, there's always times where I get caught off guard and think I need to answer. Yeah. And in hindsight, I'm like, I didn't even give a, you know, that wasn't true. <laughs> or that yeah. wasn't even a great answer. I should have just. Yeah, those, those, those situations are traps, I feel. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. So what's next? I mean, what are you guys working on now? Trying to, trying to, you've you've done twenty seven. You said in the mm-hmm. last y- y- little over a year. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. How is it? I mean, this rate of growth. Like, what's the, what's the plan? And what are you thinking about? And what keeps you up at night? And yeah, all those things. So we have incredibly satisfied parents. So we know awesome. that the parent side we are delivering on, and we you know, have a huge demand and weightless. So we're we're less focused on that piece at the moment. We are very focused on our educator sure. businesses and finding great educators. And we're geographically going to stay focused in the two states we're in right now, Montana and Colorado. So okay. even with this fundraise, it's not a huge national explosion. We're really trying to figure out what does it look like to saturate a market need? And yeah. how do, you know, what do we gain from becoming a trusted brand in a place like Missoula. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are, we're really, we are step changing almost from our, our, our round close, uh, almost 10x our community size in this fundraise, but it's going to be in the geographies that we're in. Sure. And it's about really figuring out how do we recruit and support at what's turned out to be almost um definitely not exclusively, but predominantly brand new educators. So people who never thought this was possible, um, but saw something that uh, resonated with them um, in in some reach out that we've done to them. And and so trying to figure out exactly how do we find them um, and how do we scale our support services to make sure that we're constantly evolving to to meet all of the needs to create quality opportunities. we have in that process we have started to find out that one of the biggest pain points is less about finding great people and more about uh and i don't even know if more is the right word because it's kind of equal about finding uh the perfect places yeah you mentioned that previously the the real estate piece is a challenge yes we have a lot of great educators who just aren't in a licensable space Mm -hmm. so they don't have an outside space or it's not big enough where they maybe share a house or 
And because this model can generate really great you know, financial outcomes for them. And it also makes your home a revenue generating asset. Yep. Um, so we're hoping the long-term vision is to create as many support systems to plug into a path to home ownership as well over time for educators who are just getting started and never had an opportunity to even put a foot on the rung of that ladder. Yeah, that seems like it would be a big challenge, whether you know, you're, you're, you're interested in doing this, you're either in the process of buying a home or renting a place that's licensable. I don't, is that a possibility, renting a place that's licensable? It definitely is, and but, it actually makes it a more, in many cases, a more viable, uh, you a more viable tenant because you have right. predictable income, and to be licensed, it's a pretty regulated space, so everything is really well taken care of, really well and meticulously thought through and organized, so it's actually a great experience for landlords. They just aren't always they yeah that's they what that's what i'm getting kids. at right there's a <laughs> yeah. perception whether it's a land loaner or a, a you know mortgage lender whoever yeah. is like ooh, i don't know that seems risky a risky, typical renter yeah. doesn't come with a, a my village liability policy behind it either right. so there's a lot of things that i think that as the conversation expands to include property management and realtors there's a lot of cases to be made for being a part of something larger like a My Village program mm-hmm. as opposed to one-offs. Yeah, and that's another piece of the value of the community, right? You've mm-hmm. got this scaled proof of concept where you know, it's not just one person saying, hey, can I get this lease or can I get this home loan? It's, hey, me and all these other people like me have made this thing pencil and you won't lose your money and all these sorts of things. Absolutely. So this will be a call out to anybody who is is a landlord and has space that has some outside space that either can be fenced or is fenced and is open to to joining this this movement and, and supporting your community. Missoula alone it has fifteen hundred kids Over I think, 1,500. on wait lists that don't Gosh. have spots. So yeah. this is critical and in this immediate community. If you've got space and are open to a conversation, we've got phenomenal educators who are ready to get started. Um, if we can help them connect with their their place. That seems like a great kind of way to bring the conversation to a close. How do people that maybe are that that message resonates with, how do they learn more about my village and, and get involved and or tell their friends or yeah. whatever it may be? Well, I'm learning that Elkie knows everyone, so you can <laughs> yeah, either talk just, to Elkie. You can either just wave at her in uh, the five times a day that you'll run into her in Missoula, or um, go to our website, myvillage.com, and just there's uh, you know it'll pop up with a, a little bot that is a chat bot, and just either pop in there or a lead form, and it'll send straight to us, uh, and we'll get you connected to the right person in the right place for. Awesome. And it's important, I think, too, the that the website is the portal to all of the things. Some of it is facing as if it was reaching out to an educator, but mm-hmm. it's also for parents. It's also for business leaders or community members who want to somehow support or be part of it. Filling out those forms will get you to the right person. Sure. Yeah. And and also, you know, if you are somebody who has always been passionate about young kids, have young kids and think that this could be a calling for you. You do not need to have the experience to get started with us. We help you from the very beginning of your journey. Or if you do have experience, we have other people who have masters in early childhood that that we're able to to meet them where they are. And so please reach out to us. We are very excited to start a conversation with you and, and see how we can support. And you don't have to do it alone. It's your business, but you're not alone. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Well, Thanks for coming by the the podcast and sharing this story with us. I love it. 
best of luck and uh, it'd be great to kind of touch base down the road and, and hear how things are going but I'm certainly awesome. rooting for you and uh, yeah thanks for telling your story with us awesome thank you thanks so much okay I hope you learned as much in that conversation as I did coming up next week we have founder owner and entertainment buyer for Logjam Presents Nick Chakota. Nick has transformed entertainment in Montana and I'm excited for you to learn all about his outlook and strategy next week Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.